Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to Luke 8, chapter 18, verse 8. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to, his, to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as a lightning, lightning flashes and the lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lord, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lord went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back, remembers Lot's wife. Whoever asks six to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vouchers will gather. Chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet giving her justice, so that she would not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is, that is, this is God's word. Thanks, Stephen, for preaching God's word to us. Uh, very good morning to you all. Indeed, it is a joy to be able to gather with you on a Sunday and see so many of you face to face. I think it's a blessing that we've been able to start gathering in larger groups. Uh, as uh, Jonathan mentioned just now, we have uh, Church Matters going on today. And for those of you who may not know what that is, it's, uh, it's our membership class, but really it's just a good way for you to find out more about the church. So if you're new to us, you'd like to learn more about who we are, what we believe, how, how we think about our life together, uh, that class is uh, highly recommended and you're welcome to attend. I know if you can't sign up today, that's okay, just, just come and sign up uh, later on to welcome you to that. Uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad that God's bringing staff to us, so Yanadi, it's good to have you join our staff, brother. Uh, we're praying for you as you and Felicia raise Lazarus. <laughs> and uh, I think pray, let's pray together as well as we come to the Word, because only God can raise the dead. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for your truth. We thank you that you are God who has spoken. And Father, we pray that as we come around your word, we we ask, we plead with you that you would quieten our hearts, you'd give us soft hearts, help us to respond to you with faith, faith in you, faith in your Son. We pray that your Spirit would uh, move powerfully in us. Open our hearts, we pray. Open our eyes to behold Christ that we would draw near to Him, that we would find in Him life and satisfaction, that we would be filled with faith, hope, and love. And we pray this in His name. Amen. We've been living in a global pandemic for about a year now, and I think I'm thankful that the situation in Singapore seems to be improving. Uh, We pray that it continues to do so. Uh, However, many other countries in the world are still grappling with uh, new waves of infection. Uh, states of emergency, and fresh lockdowns. Vaccinations have begun, and for that we can be grateful. But the the rollout has been slower than many have hoped, and there seems to be no clear end in sight. So as we begin this new year, I think we are maybe cautiously optimistic, we're we're hopeful that things will get better, uh, yet we can't be sure. And I think the question that is foremost in our minds is probably this, how long? How long? You know, how long before things will turn the corner? If you just do a quick Google search of the term pandemic fatigue, and you get probably more than 300 million hits, and, and that number is probably rising as I speak. You know, pandemic fatigue is real. It, it, it is a thing. And we know people who are struggling with exhaustion, struggling with disappointment, with depression, Uh, even with despair. And if the pandemic has taught us one thing, uh, perhaps it's this, waiting is difficult. Waiting is difficult. So how should we wait amid the ambiguity, amid all the uncertainty? How will we live by faith and renew our trust in Jesus as we begin this new year? So to answer this question, Our sermons in January will focus on the theme of living by faith. Living by faith. And as you see, that's the title for this morning's sermon as well. Uh, It's part two. 
So part one was yesterday when we met. No, just kidding, just kidding. Part one was two weeks ago. Yesterday was the same sermon, so you don't have to listen to the sermon yesterday. Although we are meeting on Saturdays and Sundays now. So this is the part two of that mini-series on living by faith. And we're really preaching through Luke 17 and 18, thinking about what it means to trust in Jesus. And this is part of our larger sermon series on Luke's gospel, which, Lord willing, we will uh, wrap up at Easter. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ollie quoted this wonderful saying from 19th century Baptist pastor C.H. Spurgeon. And uh, let me read you that quote. It's very appropriate, a New Year quote. He says, If this New Year shall be full of unbelief, it will be sure to be dark and dreary. If it be baptized into faith, it will be saturated with benediction, with good words. If we believe our God as He deserves to be believed, our way will run along the still waters, and our rest will be in green pastures. And here's my favorite part of the quote. Calm dependence upon our God. Calm dependence upon our God will make us strong for labor and willing for waiting, submissive to suffering and superior to circumstances. That's what we need, friends. Isn't that what we need this year? Uh, maybe every year. Calm dependence on our God. So, friends, as we, as we come to God's Word, what we need is for Him to stir our to stir up faith in our hearts. And our text today, 1720-188, to as Stephen read for us, teaches us that living by faith means living in light of Jesus' return. And it's vital that we take this to heart because as we live in this fallen world, we, we face real spiritual dangers. We face the dangers of denial, of deception, of distraction, and discouragement. And this passage urges us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ through all these spiritual dangers, confessing Him, trusting in Him as we patiently look to His coming. So just three points for us to kind of think about, to meditate on as we work our way through this passage. Number one, living by faith means believing in the King who has come. Looking at verse 20 and 21. So our passage begins with the Pharisees asking Jesus a question, and the Pharisees asked when the kingdom of God will come. And given that these religious leaders have been opposing Jesus all this while, this probably isn't a friendly question. How, how do we know this? Because Jesus has spoken time and time again about his kingdom, about how the kingdom has come. In, in Mark's gospel, Jesus starts his earthly ministry with these words. You know, his, his very first sermon, as it were, says these words, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning that it's come, it's approaching, it's near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God has come, therefore respond to the king. And then Jesus says in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, uh, similar, similar statements as well. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom has come because the king has come. And Jesus' miracles, his signs and his wonders serve this purpose of pointing to the presence of the kingdom in him. However, the Pharisees refuse to believe in Jesus unless he shows them proof, 
right? the proof that they want to see. So they have expectations of the kingdom, but they expect the kingdom to come with signs of worldly power. So they're kind of blind to all the signs that Jesus has done. So, what, so Jesus doesn't match their ideas of a king. Jesus doesn't match their ideas of a kingdom. You know, this, is, this is tragic, right? and it's terribly ironic as well. Because here, here the Pharisees are, they're looking at Jesus, and they're asking him when the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is right before their eyes. The king is right before their eyes. But they fail to see the kingdom because they are blind to the king. Friends, the Pharisees are a lesson to us in unbelief. Beware the spiritual danger of denying God's kingdom simply because it doesn't fit with our expectations. So what, what, are, what are our expectations of the kingdom? You know, for me to ask that question, it sounds a bit abstract. Many of us don't, crow, don't go through the week thinking about what do I think about the kingdom. You know, that, that's not on top on our minds. But, but let me maybe help us to understand what the kingdom is a bit more. So our vision of the kingdom is simply shaped by what we think is the good life. So our vision of the kingdom is shaped by what we think is the good life. So what, what do we think is the good life? What do you think is the good life? That is your expectation of the kingdom. However, find the good life. Right? That, that's your kingdom expectation. So our, our kingdom expectation, our vision of the kingdom can line up with what God says the kingdom is. Great. Or they may not. Our expectations of the kingdom may not line up with what God says or what Jesus says the kingdom is. And then we have a problem. Which is why we need to listen carefully to what Jesus says about the kingdom and then bring our expectations of the good life into line with what Jesus says, this is really what the good life is. This is the kingdom that we should be hoping for and expecting. Our kingdom, friends, is simply what we seek for. It's what we hope for. It's what we live for. Your kingdom is what gets you out of bed in the morning. Your kingdom is the reason why you show up for work on Monday mornings. Your kingdom is why you raise your family the way you do. Your kingdom is why you want to marry that person and not that person. Those things are all your kingdom, right? And do they line up with what Jesus says the kingdom is? So Jesus wants us to lay aside our expectations, our own definitions of the kingdom, and to listen to what he says about the kingdom. And he tells us in verses 20 and 21, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Now, God's kingdom has come but it's come in rather unexpected ways. It seems small and insignificant in the world, like a tiny mustard seed, but it will grow into a huge tree sheltering the nations. And like leaven hidden in flour, the kingdom is invisible now. We don't see it, obviously, but it is surely spreading and growing. So faith 
means believing what Jesus says about His kingdom and entrusting our expectations to what He says. Jesus says to us, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Verse 21. So look carefully. The kingdom has already come because the king has come. And we will enter the kingdom if we have faith in the king. That's the only way to enter the kingdom. It's true trusting in the king. You know, my, my eyesight is, is really bad. So that's why I wear glasses. And I'm practically blind without my glasses. Right? So if you take off my glasses, I, I, can't, see, I can't see my notes. And, and I, you know, I, I just see a whole mess of blurred faces in front of me if I take off my glasses. And obviously, I can't drive. I shouldn't drive. Uh, so if I take off my glasses, everything is out of focus, right? I can't see clearly. And I think this is saying about the kingdom as well. That unless we, we see the kingdom through the lenses of Jesus, nothing makes sense. Everything is just out of focus. Nothing is clear. But Jesus says, if, if you see him, then everything is clear. The kingdom is clear. We see that it's here because the king has come. So really what, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is it's really a, a call to faith for them. He's, he's calling them to trust in Him so that they will see the presence of the kingdom. But if they refuse to see Him, they will, ref, they will not see the reality of God's kingdom. Friends, we may spend a lot of time keeping up with current affairs, you know, world events, economic indicators and financial markets. You know, lately, I've I found myself reading CNN more regularly. And I think part of the reason is because of what's been happening in the world, particularly, particularly in the US. I read CNN in the morning. I read it before I go to bed. I read it a lot now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just eager to find out what's going on. But friends, we, we may be worldly wise about our times. You know, we may know the times well in which we live. But are we truly wise because we're trusting in Jesus? Now, when Jesus says to us, know the times, he's not telling us to keep up with current affairs. He's not, he's not telling us to know how bad the economy is. That, that's not what Jesus means when he says, know the times. Not at all, actually. But instead, he's calling us to know the times because we know him and we trust him even as the world falls apart around us. That's what it means to know the times. Now, there's lots going on in the world right now. You know, countries are in turmoil. Economies are contracting. And the virus is still spreading, friends. In fact, new variants are being discovered that are even more contagious, more infectious. And friends, if, if, if I were just to read CNN all the time, I would be very afraid. You know, focusing on what's happening in the world and merely focusing on what's happening in the world will only make us fearful. It will fill our hearts with anxiety. It will fill our hearts with worry and fear. I think that, that's one of the effects that the news has on us. No, the remedy is not to read less news, although you might want to read less news, but, but the remedy is to really look to Christ to trust in Him, to allow His Word to be the lenses 
through which we view the world and not the other way around. Otherwise, we'll just live fearful lives. The remedy is to trust that God is in control and that He, not us, is building His kingdom. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's church. That's a promise that we can bank our lives on. So don't seek for signs of the times and overlook the Saviour. I I pray that as as we think about this passage, I, I pray that God will give us the eyes of faith to see what He is doing among us. Even right here in this local church, God is doing a good work. May we not be blind to that. May He give us eyes of faith to see what He's doing among us and beyond us in the world at large. Because God is at work. He's building His kingdom, friends. And He's here. And He's growing. We can trust Him. The second point from our passage is living by faith means living in light of the king's return. So we've talked about how the king has come, therefore the kingdom has come. And then here in in these verses 22 to 37, Jesus turns to his disciples specifically and he begins to teach them about his return. So the fact that Jesus is talking about his return implies that he's going to leave and then come back. Right, so Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And Jesus died for sinners like us, bearing God's judgment so that we can be forgiven and brought back to God if we trust in him. And Jesus rose from the dead in triumph over sin and death. And after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven, exalted to the Father's right hand, and he will come again. Yes, it says in the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So that, that, friends, is a thumbnail of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And this is the return that Jesus speaks of beginning in verse 22. And Jesus refers to his return as the days of the Son of Man. It's interesting way to refer to it. The Son of Man, that, that, that uh, self-reference, it recalls Daniel 7. Right? So in Daniel 7, there's this scene where the Son of Man, this, 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 uh, this person, the Son of Man, receives a kingdom from the Father, God the Father, the Ancient of Days. Right? And that's how Daniel, this is how Daniel describes that glorious scene. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus talks about the return of the Son of Man, he's talking about himself as this Son of Man who will receive a kingdom and who will come back to fully establish this kingdom. Now, now, now all this is a bit confusing, right? Because didn't didn't we just say that the kingdom is here? And now we're saying that the kingdom has not yet come. So which one is it? Is the kingdom here or has it not yet come? The answer is yes. (laughs) 
So it's vital that we understand how the, the kingdom comes, right? So when, when Scripture speaks of the kingdom, Scripture says that the kingdom has already come because the king has come, but the kingdom has not yet come in its full glory. So it's come, but it's not yet come in its fullness. And it will only come in its full glory when the king returns, when Jesus comes back. So let, let me give us a bit of a, a small illustration to, to shed light on this point. Now this, this is a fairly new building. I think it was completed in 2017. So before, before this building was constructed, there was a groundbreaking ceremony. Right? So, so came to this plot of land and you know, they broke ground and, and they celebrated that, that breaking of ground with a little ceremony. Right? It was a significant event because that groundbreaking ceremony indicated that construction would begin and this process of building would begin. And one day we can look forward to the completion of the building. Right? So you, ground, you break ground and then you look forward to the completion. So that, that's a bit of an analogy for, for how the kingdom has come. So, so the first coming of Jesus is like that groundbreaking ceremony. Where Jesus has come, he's broke ground, he's laid deep foundations for the kingdom. And then after he ascends, turns to the Father, we are in this process of building that kingdom. And one day, construction will be finished. Construction will be completed. And on that day, we'll see God's kingdom in its splendor, in its glory, in its beauty. Right? It's, a bit, it's a bit like us enjoying this new building, right? So one day, we'll, we'll enter into that f uh, glorious kingdom and we'll enjoy God forever. So that's what we're looking forward to. Ground has been broken, construction has begun, and construction will be completed when Jesus returns. And on that day, there will be a new heaven and new earth with no more sin or sorrow, no more disease or death. There will be perfect joy and peace as God dwells with His people forevermore. But friends, we're waiting for that day. And we live in between the times. We live between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. So there are things that we enjoy now because we are in Christ. So if, if, if we're in Christ now, if we believe in Him now, we are made right with God. You know, we, we are justified now. We experience the peace and joy of sins forgiven. God is our Father now. We are His children now. So all those are present blessings of the gospel. We belong to His spiritual family. Look around. These are our brothers and sisters. We have relationships now. But friends, the kingdom is not yet. So even as we enjoy the present blessings now, we still struggle, don't we? We still wrestle with frustration, with futility. We, we, we are very aware of our own frailty and our own weaknesses. You, know, you wake up in the morning and maybe your back aches. It's a reminder that we live in between the times. The kingdom has not, has not yet come in its fullness. We still struggle with sin, with sorrow, with suffering. And we will be rejected by the world. We will be despised by a fallen world which opposes Christ and His people. You know, this is the reason why Jesus says what He says in verse 22. So you read it, read it carefully. Jesus said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. 
why did, he, why did he say you will desire? I think Jesus is saying the days are coming when you will suffer for my sake. The days are coming when your life on this earth will be very hard because you follow me. The days are coming when you experience the cost of discipleship. And when you, ex- when, when you bear the cost of discipleship, when you begin to suffer for my sake, ah, that's when you will desire to see the days of the Son of Man. You really long for that because you know the cost of following Jesus. So friends, what does this tell us about following Jesus? What does it tell us about being a disciple of Christ? It actually says that disciples are marked by a yearning, by a longing for Jesus' return. We, we cry out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Hope awaits fulfillment. Faith has not yet turned to sight. So if we follow Jesus, and friends, we, we shouldn't expect our best life now because we know something far better and we're looking forward to something far better. That, that's what characterizes a disciple of Christ, that longing and that yearning for His return. Friends, is Jesus our hope? Is He our hope? Do we desire His return? Do we long for the days of the Son of Man? Jesus will return in glory and His coming will not be a secret one. So it's quite different from His first coming. So His first coming was somewhat hidden. Right? He, he comes humbly. But His second coming will not be secret, but will be seen by all. He says that in verse 24. As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so it's very visible, so will the Son of Man be in His day. He will come back in glory, and on that day, every knee will bow, either willingly or unwillingly. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus says this to us so that we will not be deceived by counterfeit hopes. We will not be deceived or misled by any false teaching claiming some special knowledge of His return. So if someone tells you, I know the date of Jesus' return, don't believe them. Right? No one has special knowledge of His return. Jesus says, when I come back, it will be very obvious. You will know it. So don't be misled by all these speculations about the end times. Don't believe the fake news. Don't believe the conspiracy theories. He's saying to his disciples, just hold on to what I tell you. Right? Hold fast to my word. Don't speculate. Don't be anxious. Just hold fast to what I say to you, what my word says to you. That's why he says in verse 23, they will say to you, look there. Or look here. Right? Here, here it is. Jesus is here. Or, no, no, Jesus is over there. He's come back. No. Jesus says, don't believe them. Do not go out or follow them. Just trust in what Jesus says. Trust in what his word says. And there's also a caveat in verse 25. Jesus wants us to know that 
His coming is glorious, but the path to glory goes through trials. You know, the, the disciples can't wait for Jesus to come back, right, so that they can be, so that they can escape the suffering of this present life. But Jesus says to them, even as the Son of Man shall return in glory, he must first, verse 25, suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is a call to wait for Jesus with patient endurance. We follow a crucified Christ who calls us to walk in his footsteps. And he tells us in verse 25 that just as he suffered, we as disciples who look forward to his coming will also go through the crucible of suffering as well. Be prepared to suffer for the faith before we enter the kingdom of God. Because as Paul says in Acts, we will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. The cross comes before the crown. And when Jesus comes back, he will catch many unaware and unprepared like in the days of Noah and Lot in the Old Testament. He tells us, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur, rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You know, it's been said that the pandemic has been a much-needed interruption to life and business as usual. Right? It's almost like the, the world's right to a halt and everyone is forced to kind of take stock of what, of what their lives are all about, how they spend their time, how they spend all their efforts and all the, how they spend all their money. Right, so, so people have said the pandemic is a very useful kind of stop button right, for the world to, to give us this opportunity, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to stop and reflect on where things are headed and what my life is all about. You know, it, it's interesting what Jesus says about the days of Noah and Lot. You know, Noah lived in a time of, of you know, great unrighteousness in the world. Right? We, we see that in Genesis 6 where the imaginations of man's heart was only evil continually before the Lord. Right? You see that in Genesis 6. Then, then we know that Lot lived in Sodom, and we, we know the kind of city that Sodom was, you know, a city of great ungodliness and unrighteousness. But I think what's striking in this passage is what, what Jesus highlights about the times of Noah and Lot. Right? Jesus could have said, those times were really, really sinful times. People were so busy sinning that they were so distracted that they didn't, they didn't, they didn't realize judgment was coming. Right? They, were, they were so busy with egregious sins that they didn't realize judgment was coming. But you notice Jesus doesn't say that. What, what does Jesus highlight about the times of Noah and Lot? Ordinary life. Not, not their sins, but their ordinary lives. What, what were they doing? Eating, drinking, buying, selling, building, planting, marrying, being given in marriage. Friends, that's our life, isn't it? That's our life. So, so think, about, think about this for a moment. You, you know what will distract us from Jesus coming? Actually, not, not the greatest sin we can think of, 
But the thing that will most distract us from Jesus coming is ordinary life. It's ordinary life. Isn't that sobering to think about? You can go into this week, get on with your lives as normal, live out our ordinary lives and, and not give a single thought to how all this must end, to how Christ will be coming back. You know, we, 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 you know so, someone has said that the only way we can get on with life is by not thinking about death. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it seems to be what Jesus is saying, that we can be so caught up with ordinary life, you know, eating, drinking, maybe for some of us, especially eating, drinking, buying, selling. That's, that's our jobs, right? Building, planting, it could be raising a family, it could be buying a home, planning for our wedding. We could be so caught up with all these things, they're ordinary, that we forget what Jesus says about the kingdom, that it is here and it will come back, that he is coming back in judgment. You know, all, all that Jesus describes of the days of Noah and Lot are a description of life in Singapore. Now, living by faith means living in light of Jesus' return. Do we realize that we live on the edge of eternity? Imagine yourself standing on a cliff, looking down that sheer drop. That's where we live. We live on the precipice of eternity. Or have we been too distracted by ordinary life to consider Christ? Friends, I know we're all busy, and it's not wrong to be busy, but even so, we should pause and ask ourselves, why am I so busy? Who am I really busy for? Now, to live in light of Jesus' return means to stop grasping for the things of this present age, whether it's worldly success or wealth, and to hold our earthly ambitions and, and accomplishments with an open hand. It doesn't mean that we can't be ambitious, doesn't mean that we can't accomplish anything, but we, need, we have to be willing to hold these things pretty openly. Right? So if, if God takes them away, we say, your will be done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus is calling us to forsake what this world values and holds dear, what this world cannot live without. And Jesus is calling us to be willing to forsake these things. That's why he says to us in these verses, don't turn back. Don't look back. Verse 31, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And then he, he, he makes this very, very pithy statement, right? Remember Lot's wife. Right? Now, for those of us who are, who've heard the, the Old Testament stories, right? we, we know how God rained judgment down on Sodom. And, and Lot was commanded to leave. Right? God was being merciful to Lot. He allowed him to leave with his family, along with his wife. And, and he and his wife were making his way out of Sodom. Right? Judgment was about to come down. But in that crucial moment... Lot's wife stops and she turns around and, and, she, and she, she gives this long, lingering look at Sodom, almost to say, 
I can't bear to leave. My, my old life was so comfortable. We had such a good life in Sodom. I, I can't bear to leave. And then, of course, we know how the story ends. She was swept away together with Sodom. So Jesus says to us, remember, Lord's wife, don't look back longingly at your former life and say, oh, that was so nice. Why did I leave that behind? Maybe I should go back. She had an opportunity to flee from God's judgment, but she didn't want to leave her old life behind. She perished. That's why Jesus says in verse 33, whoever seeks, to whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. If we try to cling on to life in this world, try to live, you know, make, make the best of this world like, as if that's all that we have, if we try to cling on to life in this world, Jesus says we will lose our lives. But whoever loses his life, whoever is willing to to let this life in this world go and follow Him, whoever loses his life will keep it. If we live for this passing world, we will pass away along with it. But if we commit to Christ, we will live with Him forever. Jesus will return in judgment. A day is coming when Jesus will make a final separation between people. That's what He talks about in verses 34 to 37. There will be a final separation between people. Some will be saved. Some will enter into judgment. And friends, we all, all of us have sinned. All of us deserve judgment. But the good news of the coming of the kingdom is that Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. And He gave His life on the cross so that we have a chance of escape to flee from the wrath to come. And this is, the, this is the, the blessing of living in between the ages. Christ has come. He's coming again. And in the meantime, Paul says, this is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Christ holds out His hands to us and says, come to me. Don't look back. Come to me. That you may have life and live and have joy that can, be never, that, that can never be taken away. Come to me. Friends, this, this is the blessing of, of living now before He comes back. Will we trust in Him and follow Him today? Today is the day of salvation. And finally, living by faith means persistently praying for the King's return. We'll see that in verse 1 to 8 of chapter 18. As we saw earlier, to be a disciple of Jesus is too long for his return. But friends, waiting can be hard. You know, you just look around. The world is full of trouble. It's in the news every day. You know, Claire and I lived in the U.S. for almost seven years, and for a good part of that time, we lived on Capitol Hill. So about a 15-minute walk from the Capitol building. So, so as we read about all the events that were happening in Washington, D.C., I think it filled us with tremendous sadness to know that this was once our neighborhood. And this is, these things are happening in what was once our neighborhood. You know, many of our American friends are deeply grieved by all that is taking place in their country. You know, let, let's pray for them. Let's pray for that nation that grace, righteousness, and peace will prevail in that great land. 
And then friends, even as the world seems dark, may the light of the gospel shine even brighter in the darkness. And as we look around, as we read the news, the travails of our times are really a call to prayer. Why? Because we are in danger of being discouraged. We're in danger of reading the news and, and, and really losing heart. So Jesus is concerned that his disciples not lose heart as we live in this fallen world. So he begins by telling them this parable in chapter 18. Now, to lose heart means to become weary or fearful. And the word is used several places in the New Testament, including, including Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not lose heart. Let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, referring to the second coming, we will reap if we do not give up. And then 2 Thessalonians 3, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary, do not lose heart, do not grow weary in doing good. So if we focus merely on our circumstances, we will lose heart. We will become discouraged. So how will we press on and not give up? Jesus encourages his disciples with a parable saying, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the parable has two characters, a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and a widow in desperate need. So this widow, probably suffering some kind of injustice, maybe someone was taking away her property or maybe increasing her rent, I, I don't know, but, but she was suffering some injustice, so she kept coming to the judge for help. And the unrighteous judge, because he has, a, he has an unrighteous reputation to upkeep, you know, he says that himself, he refuses to listen to her. But the widow's persistence wears him down. Right? Again and again, she would come to him. So much so that he finally just relents. Says, yes, yeah, okay, just, just take what you want. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you justice. Just, just, just leave me alone. Just, you know, he says that to her just to get rid of her. So what is, what, what's the point of this parable? So before we focus on what we can learn from the parable, I think it's helpful to be clear about what the parable is not saying. So the parable is not saying that God is unrighteous, like the judge. So it's not saying that. That's, that's not the point of comparison. The parable is not saying that God finds our constant prayers wearisome. It's not saying that either. And the parable is not saying that God will give us whatever we want if we pray enough or pester Him enough. Uh, the parable is not saying that. So, so what, it is, what, what is it saying? The parable is making its point by way of contrast. The judge is contrasted with God. So the judge is unrighteous and uncaring. God, on the other hand, is just, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's compassionate. So therefore, and here's the point, therefore, if a godless judge will answer the request of a helpless widow, then how much more, how much more will a loving God hear the prayers of his people? That, that's the point of the parable. How much more will our Heavenly Father give justice to His children? That's why it says in verse, Jesus says in verse 7 and 8, Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Friends, prayer helps us to persevere because prayer reminds us that God is a loving Father that we can come to 
that He's adopted us as His own, and we can submit to His timetable and purposes. That's why Jesus says, pray, keep praying, keep reminding yourself of who I am, and trust me. Wait and trust me. So friends, does, does this parable give us a blank check to ask for whatever we want? Right? Do we just pray for anything we want and trust that God will answer us? No, actually, Jesus specifies what we pray for. So look carefully at verses 7 and 8. What do, the, what do God's elect cry out to Him day and night for? Not for their personal comfort, not for their best life now, not, not for their wealth and success in this world. What do they cry out to God for? For justice. For justice. In, in other words, the elect are saying to God, God, make things right. Make things right. You, you are good and righteous God. This world is messed up, so make things right. So we're, we're suffering in this fallen world. God, please make things right. They're praying for Jesus to come back. They're praying for God's kingdom to come. That's what the elect are praying for. We, we are supposed to lament our sins. We're supposed to lament the sins around us. And this lament expresses itself in prayer as we cry out to God for help and for mercy. The elect are hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. They're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And living by faith means persistently praying for God to come back, for Jesus to come back. Friends, do we feel the burden of living and witnessing for King Jesus as we do life in a fallen and broken world? A recent report by advocacy group Open Doors said the persecution of Christians around the world has increased during the pandemic. And according to this Open Doors report, more than 340 million Christians, let, let the numbers sink in a bit, more than 340 million Christians, one in eight Christians, face high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. Friends, in order to understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 18, we need to understand what's being said in Revelation 6, verse 9 and 11. And we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are speaking in Revelation 9, 6, 9 to 11. Uh, hear the voice of the martyrs. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Friends, that, that's what prayer is. It's a call to God for mercy, for help, for His kingdom to come. Now John Piper says these convicting words. The number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Friends, do we, do we pray for the kingdom to come back or are, or are our prayers just simply revolving around just, just life in this world? 
what do we pray for? Jesus is calling us to pray these kingdom-minded prayers for His will to be done, for His kingdom to come. Prayer is that voice of longing as we journey through the wilderness of this world. In the 5th century, the great city of Rome was sacked by barbarian tribes. Rome was expected to endure forever. It was called the eternal city. And yet, it was reduced to ruins. It was a terribly confusing time for everyone, as you can imagine, living through the, the, you know, almost the, the, the destruction of civilization as we know it. So Augustine was the bishop of Hippo Regis during that time. And at that time, Augustine wrote this famous work, The, the City of God to help Christians make sense of all that was happening while the world fell apart around them. So friends, if we think the world is falling apart, it has happened before. It's not the first time. So Augustine's message to those believers in the 5th century also speaks to us today. And he said, Christians are committed to the eternal city, but it is not Rome. Friends, the eternal city is not Singapore. It's not our life today in the here and now. Our commitment is not to Rome. Our commitment is to Jesus Christ and His church. There are always two kingdoms, two cities and two kings, but only the city of God and of King Jesus will last forever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are merciful to us. We thank you that you are kind and compassionate. And Father, as we come to you, we pray that you would open our hearts to you. We pray that you would expose our hearts. Father, may your word bring conviction. May we see your truth clearly. May your spirit remove any obstacles to faith. Father, we come to you and, and we first, of, first and foremost, we, we come with our failings. We, we come as sinful, needy people, recognizing that we've not loved you as we ought, recognizing that we have not desired Christ or his kingdom as we ought. Father, in our brokenness and our humility, we, we ask of you, forgive us. Forgive us, Father, for how we have lived. We pray that you would work the power of your gospel in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would move us out of ourselves and move us to trust in you. Move us to draw near to Christ by faith, to live for him, to look for his kingdom, to seek him first and foremost, and then to live our lives in light of the return of your son. So Father, help us, we pray. We can't do these things on our own. And indeed, we need your strength. So we cry out to you for mercy and we long for the return of Jesus. We, we say, how long, O Lord, how long? Help us, Father, we pray, for we are your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.